0: Hi, friends, and welcome to Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. I'm Nicolette, and we are so glad to have you joining our church community. Here at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, we like to start the new year with a dedicated week of prayer. Today, Pastor Char Broderson will walk us through prayer as a way of life, teaching from Matthew 6, which is where Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. As important as a week of prayer is, what we really need is to learn to practice prayer as a way of life. True prayer is relationally driven, and it is based on regular conversations with our Father. Pastor Char will walk us through each section of the Lord's Prayer and show us practically how we can apply it to our daily prayer life. Jesus says to His followers, when you pray, say these words. Pray this prayer. He wants this prayer to be central to our lives as His followers. He wants it to shape and form our hope, stir our faith, and reorient our desires. Now, as many of you know, for many years, we have dedicated our first week, uh, second week of January, a whole week to prayer, to just recalibrate ourselves, refocus ourselves at the beginning of the year that we would be seeking the Lord together. And I love that we've made this a regular emphasis of our community. And as important as a week of prayer is for us as a church and as a important as a regular prayer meeting is just with other brothers and sisters, I think what we really need is to learn to practice prayer as a way of being, prayer as a way of life. <clears throat> and I am including myself in this. I have noticed that for many, the driver of our practice of prayer is often our emotions and our Fears, our needs, right? I'm afraid, so I pray. I lack wisdom, I need help, so I pray. I failed, and so now I pray, and I ask for forgiveness, for restoration. And now, of course, God invites us to bring all of these things to him. Scripture tells us, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. And there are many other passages that encourage and invite us to talk freely, openly, honestly with God about our needs, our emotions, and our failures. But my conviction is that... That is not the baseline or foundation of prayer. Your emotions should not be the driver of your conversation with God. Just like how dysfunctional that would be if your emotions were the driver in any conversation with anybody that you had an established relationship with. Like, hey, I feel like you're kind of always a mess and these are the only things we're ever talking about, right? I feel like you're always in need and these are the only things we're ever talking about. How deep, how personable would that relationship actually be? be. This is not all we should talk to God about. Prayer is actually so much more than praying our emotions or praying our fears. I remember years ago when Grace and I first started pastoring the church up in Northern California, we had a prayer meeting in our home every Friday night, and it was small, but it was mighty. You know, it was like there were probably six of us in total, and we came together regularly and just poured out our hearts, you know, for our little community and the work that God was doing there. But I'll never forget, one Friday evening, people begin to pour into our little one-bedroom apartment, and Grace and I were like astonished, like, what is happening? Oh my gosh, we just took over the church, we've been praying, and God is pouring out a Spirit. This is amazing. You know, we're just so excited. And then as we began to pray, one individual said this, Dear God, we pray against Barack Obama, and we ask that he would not become the next president of this amazing country. And then I realized why everybody had suddenly shown up. It was November. Go figure. Well... You guys know the rest of the story. Barack Obama did become the president of this amazing nation. And here we are today. Now, the following week, we were right back to the regular small group praying together. And this seems to me is the way that it happens so often. And I don't know how you feel about this scenario, but as the pastor of this local congregation, I was saddened. And it wasn't because people were praying about the, a specific outcome of the election or the fact that the passion to pray was driven by fear, or that as a result, more of our people were probably disillusioned by their unanswered prayer. Like, see, we prayed, God did nothing. I was saddened and disappointed that our people had entirely missed the heart of prayer. Now, can we pray for presidential elections? Can we pray for good days and parking spots? Sure. Of course, yeah, God tells us, right? Paul writes, pray for all those who are in uh, leadership and government authority that we might live a quiet and peaceable life. But let me say this, this is not where prayer begins. And I believe if we start here, we will never enter into prayer as a way of life, as a way of being as followers of Jesus. So we can pray our fears, we can pray our anger, we can pray all of our emotion to God, but true prayer is relationally driven and it is fundamentally based on regular conversation with our father Tim Keller has this great um, description of what prayer is and he says prayer is continuing a conversation that God began by his word and by his grace and so even just imagine that we breathe in the word of God and we breathe out prayer and there's supposed to be the, kind of this back and forth rhythm between us and God. God has spoken and we respond in conversation, continual conversation with God in prayer. A conversation with our Father. And remember, this is how Jesus begins this prayer for disciples to pray, our Father. And so what I want to do this morning is I simply want to walk through the purpose of prayer, the structure of the Lord's Prayer, how we might assimilate these petitions in our own lives and my deepest heart's desire is that you would learn to pray and that you would continue in prayer so what is the purpose of this prayer so there are different views on what we are to do with this prayer the lord's prayer specifically do we recite it verbatim do we paraphrase it and make it our own what was jesus's intention with this prayer Well, in Luke's gospel, the Lord's prayer is given in direct response to the disciples observing the life of Jesus. Remember, the Jews knew how to pray. They had the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And they would pray this prayer every day. They also had the Psalms as their prayer book, their song book, and they would pray prayers out of the Psalms regularly. But the disciples saw something about the way that Jesus prayed, and they say, Lord, you need to teach us to pray. And so Jesus responds, and he says this, When you pray, say these words. It's interesting to note that here in Matthew's gospel, Jesus' teaching on prayer is the very middle of the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' powerful teaching on what it means to be a kingdom of heaven people and live faithfully and truly as Jesus' disciples. The point of Jesus' teaching on prayer is not just that disciples would memorize or recite the prayer. Jesus' purpose of giving us this prayer is so that it would bring radical shaping and reorientation to our lives as His disciples, which is one of the reasons why we find it at the very heart of the Sermon on the Mount, Listen to this quote by D.J. Murata, his book, Liturgy in the Wilderness. He says, when a Christian prays the Lord's Prayer, they are reciting and hopefully remembering what this following Jesus business is all about. I love that. The prayer has a reciprocating effect of shaping the person who prays it. As you pray the words, you are reminded that this is what you believe. And so you believe a little deeper, a little bit more. As you believe a little deeper, your actions begin to align just a bit more closely with your beliefs. Now, there's an ancient Latin phrase that Christians have used through the centuries that summarizes this effect. Lex orandi, lex credendi, lex vivendi. The law of praying is the law of believing, is the law of living. What you pray shapes what you believe and shapes how you live. What you pray shapes what you believe and how you live. That's very interesting to note, isn't it? Because we normally think, no, 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 what I believe shapes what I pray. No. It's the other way around, it shapes our desires, our hopes, our fears, our dreams. And so we must be very careful that we are praying in the right way. And that's why Jesus gives us this prayer to train our hearts to want the right things, to see the world the way that He sees it. One of the main purposes of this prayer is that it would teach us what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, and that it would reorient the whole of our lives around this identity. Here's another way to put it. The point of this prayer is not to get into your head, but to get into your bones to assimilate it, and it becomes a part of you. Now, the structure of this prayer is very interesting as well. There are six petitions in total. The first three concern God, His honor, His kingdom, His will, and the second three concern us, give us, forgive us, deliver us. And the line that links these two sets of petitions together is this phrase, on earth as it is in heaven. Bring heaven to earth and earth to heaven. Reunite heaven and earth. Fascinating. It's more. I feel like I'm saying fascinating and interesting a lot this morning, so forgive me. But on earth as it is in heaven is the very center of the prayer that is the very center of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the heart of being a disciple of Jesus, that the kingdom of heaven would come on earth and that we are committed with God to that work of seeing the kingdom brought. You can see then how this prayer is actually inviting us into God's world and then how we invite God into our world. Prayer involves us deeply and responsibly in all of God's operations, and prayer involves God deeply and transformatively in all the details of our lives. You remember about a year and a half ago, Pastor Brian and I did a teaching on what we called holy partnership. And we were teaching out of Psalm 85, and there the psalmist is envisioning that righteousness would rain down from the heaven, and then faithfulness would spring up from the ground. And this holy partnership of heaven and earth would bring about God's glory in the land. That the glory that was confined to the temple previously would now spill over and touch every area. Not just be confined to the temple, but the glory of the Lord and the knowledge of him would fill the whole earth, even as the waters cover the sea. See, that's what this prayer really is about. It's about a holy partnership with God. God and his kingdom work. That God's kingdom rule of righteousness and justice, peace and joy, healing and hope would take over in all the areas of our world where it is still unrecognized. Dallas Willard wrote in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, he says, when Jesus directs us to pray, thy kingdom come, he doesn't mean that we should pray for it to come into existence the kingdom of God has always been, because where God is, there God reigns, and there His kingdom is. He says, rather, we pray for it to take over at all points in the personal, social, and political order where it is now excluded, on earth as it is in heaven. With this prayer, we are invoking it As in faith, we are acting it into the real world of our daily existence. I have found that many Christians are uncomfortable with prayer. They feel they are not articulate enough, not theologically minded enough to pray. But Jesus' prayer is not for intellectuals, and it's not for theologians. It's for the common person to take hold of God and for God to take hold of the common person. And I believe that though well-intended, many have actually done a disservice to prayer, and specifically this prayer, by giving long sermons and explanations about it. So you can hold me accountable afterwards, pull me aside, be like, too long. See, this isn't the point. The point is not to study and dissect prayer The point is to pray. Martin Luther said this, the church fathers have said correctly that many long prayers are not the way. If you've ever been to a prayer meeting where I happen to be leading, you've heard me say this. Okay, everybody, pray loud enough so everyone can hear you, short and sweet enough so we don't get bored and fall asleep. Let's keep this thing moving. He says this, They recommend short, fervent prayers where one sighs towards heaven with a word or two, as is often quite possible in the midst of reading, writing, or doing some other task. He summarizes prayer for the Christian should be brief, frequent, and intense. That's the model of this prayer. It's interesting. I think Luther has picked up on the staccato format of Jesus' prayer for disciples, and though it's strange-sounding and a bit robotic in English, the original Greek reading would sound something and look something like this. Our Father in the heavens, name honored, kingdom come, will done on earth as it is in heaven, bread give, sin forgive, temptation deliver. So far from being a prayer for intellectuals, this is a prayer that anybody can take hold of, anywhere they are. Alexander White commented this on the Lord's Prayer. He says, the shortest memory may retain it. So, those who the hard drive is full you're in good company, right? And the busiest life may utter it. Maybe those who are parenting for the first time, somebody told you that having three is no different than having two, and they lied to you. (laughs) The busiest life may utter it. Sorry, speaking out of personal hurt here. Um... (laughs) And that is the point of this prayer, that it can be taken up as you engage with the everyday ups and downs of real life. Because how many of us have found that prayer, the way that we think of it, is just unapproachable? It's like, forget it. I guess we'll just pray when we get to heaven. Like, I'm never going to master this. You know, you hear stories about James, the brother of Jesus, and they said that they called him like camel knees, which is like, what did they call him? And apparently it's because he had calluses so big on his knees because of how much time he spent on his knees in prayer. James, more power to your brother, right? But the way that life is at this moment, dad of three, pastoring this church, involved just in like wanting to be involved in my neighborhood, I just can't imagine that being a rhythm that I can stick to. Actually, I've never found that to be approachable, but I, for many years, believe that I have been praying without ceasing. Just as I'm going about my day, this kind of prayer is constantly on my lips, constantly bringing God into what's happening, the difficulties of the day, the joys of the day, the, you know. Things that stand in front of me, the barriers, the obstacles that I see, just calling God's kingdom and His will and His honor and His glory and His presence upon these things. And again, that is the point of this prayer. It can be done without ceasing. It's just an ongoing conversation with God. It's a prayer that invites God to bring His honor, His kingdom, His will, His provision, His forgiveness and deliverance into the day-to-day, moment-by-moment situations of our everyday existence. Sadly, what we often do with this prayer is do a six-week series on the Lord's Prayer, looking at every petition and extracting it for all it's worth. And we do a lot of talking about prayer, a lot of teaching about prayer, but seldom does it transfer into a life of prayer. This prayer is meant to spiritually form you into someone who prays. This prayer is about spiritual formation and engagement with God's kingdom work as we walk through everyday life. God knows what you're carrying. He knows, and He's with you in the midst of all that, and He's not sitting back and being like, you know, you should have done three hours of prayer this morning. Things would be going a lot better if you had. So let's just look for a minute at the content of this prayer. I want to share personally how this prayer has been working in my life, and then we'll close up our time together. So the first set of petitions. I mentioned earlier that this prayer is meant to reshape and reorient us around God and His kingdom. And it's how we get ourselves involved with God's work. It helps us see life through God's lens, as it were, right? His honor, His kingdom, His will. And this is the amazing thing that God has actually invited us in. God is inviting us, wanting to partner with us in His honor, in His kingdom being brought, in His will being done. And He wants it to happen here on earth, in the places of our lives, in the world where it is unseen and unrecognized. So, name honored is the first petition. And in the first petition, I really think what's happening is we are recognizing that there is no one like our God. Not only is there no one like God, but nothing in this world compares with God, with the value, the goodness, the worth, and beauty of God himself. See, what often happens in prayer is that we approach God in prayer, and we ask God to honor the things that we honor. God, I need this job because it'll bring security in my life. God, I need this relationship. God, I need everything to go well and nobody to get hurt. We hallow and honor things that God does not hallow and honor. Definitely not above his name. God considers and cares for these things. But God knows that for the human creature, there is only one thing, that when it is honored, everything else falls into its right place. And this is because, as Augustine once said, God, you have made us for yourself, and our souls are restless until they rest in you. The truth is, is that every desire for sexual intimacy to be known and to be loved is actually a desire for God. God. To be known by God, to know God's love that accepts us as we are, loves us in spite of all of our wrongs. The desire behind a good job that brings security is truly a desire for God. Only God alone is the rock that cannot be moved, a refuge that the righteous can run into and be safe. The desire for friendship is because we've been made in the image of God, who is Father, Son, and Spirit. All of these things are truly found in God alone. And so this prayer brings us back to that truth, to reorient our desires, our hearts, our minds, our eyes, to the one and only thing in this world that is worthy of honor, and that is the name of our God. That's what this prayer is meant to do. It's meant to shape us, to get us to want the right thing. See, God is not just after our heads. He's after our hearts, our desires, what we actually need, what we actually want. And God is redirecting them back to Him, the source of all life. In the second petition, Kingdom Come, we are asking for the reign of God to be seen over the deep, broken places of our world. Scripture tells us that the reign of God will bring restoration and peace to all that is broken, wrong, unrighteous, and unjust in the world. And so, where we experience deep hurt, we see betrayal, suffering systemic brokenness and evil we can pray for god's rule and reign to touch the people and places of the world and bring healing and wholeness i think too this also will keep us away from this kind of like politicizing of christianity because we realize there's only one kingdom and there's only one king there is no nation on earth that is god's you know special nation that he's got eyes for and no one else it doesn't work like that jesus says before pontius pilate my kingdom is not of this world if it was it would operate like this world and my disciples would fight but we are praying for a whole different kingdom to take over and again this is directing and shaping our hearts to want to desire to seek the right things will done i've been thinking a lot about this petition for the last few weeks it's interesting to note that jesus prayed this prayer in the garden of gethsemane before he went to the cross he made this request my father if it is possible may this cup be taken from me yet not as i will but as you will this prayer then is about relinquishing our will our desires our wants to the will of god it's like this open-handed prayer i don't know if you guys remember but i think like a month back we ended our gathering together with our hands open and asked god to take from us what we were carrying but then to give us his presence his grace His goodness. And I believe that that's what this prayer is really all about, that we are approaching God and we are releasing control, knowing that our good Father, He knows best, loves us most, and wills our ultimate good. Now here's one note, comment I have to make. Because if Jesus is the prime example of this prayer, that does mean that God's will for our lives will also involve suffering. I hear a lot of prayers about, Lord, let's have a good day, and we pray nobody gets hurt. And guess what? People still keep having bad days, and people still keep getting hurt. If Jesus is a prime example for us, we will suffer, but it will be so that we and others may be ultimately blessed, refined, matured, strengthened, and made more like Jesus. And we release our hands, what is in our hands, because Father knows best, and He is kind And good. The second set of petitions remind us that our God is and wants to be involved and present in the intricate details of our lives. You know, we are always needing to be brought back to the God of the Bible, the God of Scripture, right? Because our God and Father is not the God of deism that we often see in movies or even like Looney Tunes or something like that. I feel like Looney Tunes has shaped so much of like. Uh, America's theology, of, you know, or view of Christianity. But, you know, the view of deism is that God is disengaged from life on earth, sitting comfy in the untouched heavenly realm. That's not our God. Nor is our God and Father the God of dualism, separating what is sacred from what is secular, from what is holy to what is common, from what is heavenly to what is earthly. He is the God who created all things, the God who created invades time and space, who walks among us. And so God cares for and is concerned with real need, real brokenness, and the healing and restoration of that brokenness, and true deliverance from all evil, sin, and brokenness. And that's what these last three petitions concern. Not our wants and fancies, but true human need. And God wants to partner with us in these places of deep need. So the last three petitions, give us, this petition says. And this concerns all our personal need. I think what it does is it recognizes God as both the generous dispenser of all provision, and also our daily dependence on Him. You know, in Western society, the way that our economy works, we have this illusion that we are uh, self-sufficient, independent people, right? That we really don't need anyone. You could sit down at breakfast in the morning, make your eggs and your hash browns, that's what I do every morning, and think, give us this day our daily bread. I got it. Like, no need, God. We'll pass on to the next one, right? But the truth is, I mean, just follow that train back. Like, I don't have chickens. I didn't harvest any eggs. I didn't create chickens to begin with. Like, we could just go all the way back. Did you know, by the way, that we are having, like, a chicken-egg crisis? Anybody know about this? Yeah, Yeah, you've been to Trader Joe's, haven't you? (laughs) Yep, empty. Costco has eggs, people. (laughs) So we're having an egg crisis right now. And I think that that is just like a little bit of a window and insight into the fact that, oh my gosh, we are totally and completely helpless. It just takes one little bird flu and all the chickens start dying. Who sustains and holds all things together? The Lord. The psalmist wrote that the earth is filled with the steadfast love of the Lord. It doesn't mean that God has, like, hung hearts on trees and, you know, like, filled the, the world with, like, ah, uh, you know, f- butterfly fluttery things like that. But it speaks of God's faithfulness and goodness to humans, to the creation, that God has baked into the creation natural resources that the earth brings forth sustenance for life. Have you ever just stopped and thought about that? just these things that grow up out of the ground, we eat them and are sustained by them. And this is all by the good design of our provider, our creator. We are dependent people. And this petition, it reminds us of that in a world of independence and self-sufficiency. This keeps the people of God humble. It keeps us dependent. It keeps our eyes looking to heaven, to the gracious hand of our God. Forgive us. This petition concerns all social and relational needs. It reminds us of God freely forgiving us, but then it also trains us to continually work out forgiveness with others. You know, the world is filled with so much bitterness, with so much hurt. And that is true even in this room this morning. There are things that you have done that will never be forgotten. There is some hurt in this room that will not be healed until the kingdom comes to earth and god in his graciousness and in his goodness he charges his people to do the hard work of forgiveness because christ has done the hard work of forgiveness for us and by being reminded of the incredible debt that we have been forgiven that christ took all of our sin was not his. He took all of our sin upon himself there on the cross and suffered the just punishment for our sin. He sends us out as ambassadors, peacemakers, those who are in the business of forgiveness. I was sharing in first service that our family loves uh, the play by Lynn Manuel, Miranda, I always forget which one is which, um, you need know, to play Hamilton. And if you know anything about Alexander Hamilton, uh, the guy was a scoundrel, especially when it came to his relationship with his wife. He had multiple affairs, multiple counts of adultery. And so there's this part in the story where, you know, before his um, death in a duel, uh, pretty interesting way to die. Um, him and his wife are working on their relationship and they're patching things up. And there's a scene where, you know, everybody's kind of observing them. If you see them uptown, you know, they're doing the unimaginable, um, for, you know, they're doing all these things. And then there's this line that every time I hear it, it just strikes me to the core. They say this, forgiveness. Can you imagine? And like everybody's just like kind of struck in an awe. And truly, in this world, apart from Christ, apart from the freely forgiven people of God, it is so hard to imagine real forgiveness. And rarely is it seen. And this prayer is meant to train us, compel us to be the forgiven, forgiving people of God. That's how this petition reorders our desires, reshapes our identity and our purpose. Lastly, deliver us. This petition concerns our spiritual needs. Now, I mentioned this earlier in the will of God, but for God to keep us is not the same as not letting anything bad happen to us. And I think there's been a lot of confusion about this prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And it seems like I pray, and guess what? I'm still tempted. Uh, I pray and bad things still happen, so what is going on with this? This is a prayer that recognizes the presence of God through the evil that we endure. Even in the face of the evil one, though the evil one be set against us, Martin Luther said this, "A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he, amidst the flood of mortal ills prevailing, for still our ancient foe to seek to work us woe, his craft and power are hate, and armed his craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal but a mighty fortress is our God. Isaiah wrote these words that when you pass through the water, God says, not they won't touch you. I'll just make all the bad stuff go away. He says, no, they will not consume you. When you pass through the fire, it will not harm you for I will be with you. See, this is the promise This is the heart of this petition, is to remind us that God will preserve us from all, through all evil. He will be with us, and He will bring us safely home into His good and glorious kingdom. I often think about the 23rd Psalm. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me Where? presence of my enemies. It doesn't say, you make all my enemies go away. (laughs) You take away the valley of the shadow of death. I never saw it. And yet we pray these prayers where we expect God just to remove obstacles, where we expect God to remove difficulty. I'm sorry, this is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't do that. That's not how God works. God takes us through that he might show his mighty power and that we might know that we know that we know that God is good, that He is for us, that He is faithful, that He loves us. And that's how this petition, I believe, trains our hearts. It prepares us for suffering as well as assuring us of God's good purposes and His presence in the midst of testing Now, each of these petitions reiterate our total and complete dependence on God for everything. And though independence may be a mark of maturity in human relationships, it's actually the exact opposite when it comes to our relationship with God, isn't it? The more we mature as followers of Jesus, the more we recognize the goodness of God and our desperate need for his gracious and generous provision in our sustenance, in our relationships, and in things that are so beyond our power and control. And I believe that these petitions train us in both dependence and gratitude as the people of God. Now, I said this in the beginning, and I meant it, and I hope I've been able to do this, but the last thing I want to do this morning is convolute and complicate prayer any more than I believe it already is for us. My hope is that through this teaching, we would see how simple, accessible, and also formational prayer is meant to be, and again, that we would become a praying people. And so as we close, I would just like to share personally what these first three petitions God's honor, God's kingdom, and God's will have looked like in my life in this season and encourage you that you might do something of the same. So passing by or driving into the property here, my prayer has become, name honored. The way that God has wired me is that I truly believe that the gospel is the hope of all the earth. And that Jesus Christ is the joy of every longing heart. I believe that with every fiber of my being, that the message of the goodness of God displayed in Jesus Christ needs to get out to the world. But God has wired me in such a way that I believe the way that that is done primarily is by exhorting the people of God to be the people of God for the world. When I read Jesus' words, you people are the light of the world. I'm like, yes, that's it. Peter, you are a holy nation, a royal priesthood. What God is inviting us into is to live out this identity And I think what we could all pray is that the people of God would actually turn from all the things that we prioritize, whether it's our politics, our comforts, or just desiring all the same things that our neighbors desire, and if we would simply turn back and truly see that the name of God being honored is the most important and the greatest blessing to us in the whole world... that people would be drawn to salvation through the church. And so what I'm praying for us, Calvary Chapel, is that we would have a reputation here for the goodness of God, that people would know that is a place of kindness, that is a place of generosity, that is a place where there is not judgment, but welcome, grace, tender mercy. That's a place where you can get help. That's a place where people will grieve with you and rejoice with you. All of that is wrapped up in the name of God being honored. And so every time I pass by this property on my day off, I'm like, name honored. I pull into the parking lot, name honored. Lord, exalt your name among your people so that people would be drawn to Jesus Christ. That's what this prayer has looked like in my life. It's very simple as I'm driving, as I'm pulling in the parking lot. Kingdom come. I don't know if any of you read in the paper, but up in Sonoma County, there was a little boy who was in a trailer with his grandpa, and a tree fell in the trailer and killed him. He was two years old. I read the headline and just was so grieved. I come to find out, it's actually the best friend of our dear friends. It's his little boy. And in those moments, I don't know what else to say. I just, oh God, kingdom come. We long for the day when a child will play near the den of the viper, where a wolf will lay down with a lion and a child will lead them, where they will not hurt or harm in all of God's holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Kingdom come. Or as I walk out of a counseling appointment where I just hear the terrible things that humans have done to one another and just the shrapnel, the bleeding out that people are experiencing emotionally, spiritually, mentally. And I walk out of those appointments and I think, kingdom come. That the healing power that will touch every part of us a relationship to God, a relationship with ourselves, a relationship to others, a relationship with the creation would come now and begin to invade these deep broken places in the world. I think you could probably see yourself praying this prayer as well. Kingdom come. The last one, well done. I cannot tell you, I've had seminary training, I've had years and years of experience in ministry, and I cannot tell you how many times I am faced with situations that are beyond my wisdom and beyond my power. I imagine you feel the same. And in those situations, I am releasing to God, and I am saying, "Will done. Eugene Peterson says this, He says the first three petitions all have to do with the way we participate in what God is already doing in Christ by the Holy Spirit. God is at work in you, God is at work in the world. And prayer is the way that we participate in what God is already doing in Christ by the Holy Spirit. He says, God is at work in creation and salvation and blessing on earth. He's at work in our homes and our workplaces in our governments and schools in our prisons and churches in ships at sea, automobiles on the highway, among the hungry and poor, among the newborn and the dying. Make your own list, insert your own names, and then pray them. That is the invitation to each of us. The Lord's prayer is meant to be recited whenever a follower of Jesus prays. There are many things that we can pray. Prayers in Scripture, prayers in the Psalms, but Jesus says to his followers, his disciples, when you pray, say these words, pray this prayer. He wants this prayer to be central to the life of of his disciple. He wants it to shape and form our hope, stir our faith, and reorient our desires. And so church, I want to invite us to make this prayer a part of your daily rhythm and begin to see how it brings a kingdom of God mindset and posture to your daily life. Begin to see not how the billboards used to say, prayer changes things. But begin to see how the Shadowlands version of C.S. Lewis, he says, prayer changes me. Let it transform you as a disciple of Jesus. May it shape your hope, refresh your faith, and reorder your desires toward our good Father for his honor, his kingdom, and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. At this time, we're going to respond to this invitation to talk with God, because that's what prayer is. The worship team is going to come out and lead us. I say this often, but we call this the table of the Lord. Why? Why? Because the imagery is that He has set the table for us he is the host and we are the guest and as a good host he wants to draw out what is in you what are you carrying what burdens are you carrying what reorientation needs to happen in your life through meeting the lord at the table Maybe for some of you, this is all new, but you're hearing about this good God and his good kingdom and his kindness, and you're hearing about this impossibility of forgiveness and healing. This table is for you. It was set with you in mind, and Jesus invites you to come drink. This cup reminds us of his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sin. This small little wafer that we eat reminds us of his body that was broken for us, that we, through his beatings and bruisings, might be healed. This is a table of forgiveness. This is a table of reconciliation. This is a table to unload and be freed from our bitterness. And so come in the name of Jesus. Be reconciled to God and go and be reconciled to the world.